You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Karen Holland from Providence College. Her paper was entitled Insuring Irish Patrimonies, Catherine Power and Joan Fitzgerald in Their Sons' Non-Age. Um, in mid-16th century Ireland, Catherine Butler Power and Joan Fitzgerald Butler fought to ensure that their minor sons would acquire their patrimonies in Leinster upon coming of age. Safeguarding a son's inheritance during his non-age was the primary responsibility of a widowed aristocratic mother, and accomplishing this task required both determination and skill. Catherine's husband, Richard Power, first Baron Power and Curramore, was slain by Owen O'Callaghan before 1538, leaving 12-year-old Piers, the eldest of their three sons, as heir. Upon the mysterious death of in 14, I'm sorry, in 1546, of James Butler, ninth Earl of Ormond and Orsery, his wife Joan was left with seven sons to raise, the eldest, 15-year-old Thomas, to inherit the lordship. These two sisters-in-law, Catherine was the sister of Joan's husband, James, um, exercised divergent means, military versus political and legal, to accomplish their common goal. Relying on assistance from her natal kin, Catherine trusted in Irish custom, Brehan Law, Kern and Gallo Glass, and Coin and Livery, to retain control of the power territories in the face of threats from collateral branches of her husband's family. Lacking familial support, Joan utilized English practice, corresponding with well-placed government officials and employing legal precedents to protect Thomas's interests from Irish Lord's deputy and butler kin. In an unusual move, Joan further strengthened her son's position by adding to his land holdings during his wardship. Catherine Butler's marriage to Richard Power of Curramore, County Waterford, before 1526, was intended to create a strategic alliance for the rising Butler Earls of Ossory with their southern neighbor. By the 16th century, the Anglo-Norman Lepores, now Powers, um, had expanded their original medieval fief to encompass much of County Waterford. Richard's family was a branch of the senior line of the dynasty, the Powers of Dunhill. Desirous to further enhance the position and loyalty of his son-in-law, Piers Butler, Earl of Ossory and later 8th Earl of Ormond, wrote to Henry VIII in 1535, requesting that Richard, quote, should be enabled to be a baron of parliament with some profits of the county of Waterford, end quote. On September the 13th, 1535, Richard was created Lord Baron Power and Curramore in recognition of the true and faithful service he had provided the crown. A short time later, Lord Power's involvement in the dispute over the succession of the Desmond earldom resulted in his death. Upon Richard's death, his and Catherine's eldest son, Piers, became heir to the Power barony. Evidence regarding the Power family and their actions is provided by the testimony of the jurors of the county and the city of Waterford, compiled by royal commissioners in the presentments of 1537. 
This document records that an office was taken at Waterford, which found that peers, quote, being within age is the king's ward. As a ward of Henry VIII, his feudal overlord, peers could be kept in royal custody until he reached 21, the legal age of succession. Peers did travel to England in the company of his uncle, James Butler, sometime prior to 1537, as monies were exacted from the citizens of Waterford for his furnishing and sending forth. But the nature and extent of his stay appears to be unrecorded. Also during the minority of the heir, two-thirds of the profits of his lands were due to the crown. According to the presentments, Pierce's holdings included the manor or castle of Carmore, the castle of Clonhee, the castle of Kilmacthomas, and their appurtenances. Pierce's tenure as Henry VIII's ward was short-lived as his uncle James Butler purchased his wardship sometime between 1539 and 1541. Yet even before Pierce's body was in the hands of the Butler family, his mother Catherine had assumed control of the barony in the name of young Pierce. In this capacity, she continued the, quote, extortions, impositions, and unlawful exactions, end quote, of the powers, who Horan Graves argue in the social state of the southern and eastern counties of Ireland had discarded feudal law and trusted in Irish chieftains. One example of Lady Power's disregard of royal law detailed in the presentments is her embrace of Irish Brehan law. Quote, the king's laws be not used, but the Irish laws. Testimony records that no English courts or sessions were held throughout the power territories in Waterford. Rather, Catherine employed an Irish judge and also imposed Irish law on foreigners who had been specifically admitted to English law by Henry II. According to the jurors of the city of Waterford, Lady Power further subverted the, the king's laws establishing Catherine's law, such that, quote, matters of variance of the county are ordered much after her will and commandment, including men, including hanging men without authority, pardoning thieves, and freeing felons, often after bribes were paid. However, the most onerous of Catherine's Irish impositions was coin and livery. Coin having come to mean by the 16th century the exaction without recompense of not only a soldier's food and his lodging, but also his wages from the inhabitants, with livery denoting the additional billeting of horses and grooms on the populace. For Lady Power, providing military protection against both external and internal enemies was requisite to ensure her minor son's inheritance. The most proximate danger to the Coromore powers were the Dunhill powers, whose lands abutted one another in County Waterford. Though the Dunhill line was the senior branch of the family, their position had been eclipsed by the Coromore line in the 14th century when the direct Dunhill lineage became extinct. The most recent conflict between the two is detailed in the presentments, which note Nicholas Power of Dunhill's, quote, diverse felonies as manslaughter, robbing, and burning committed in revenging his quarrel against Pierce's father, Sir Richard Power. Containing this threat necessitated the imposition of coin and livery on Catherine's tenants. While scholars have argued that this war tax was generally recognized when imposed with the consent of the tenants, when levied without their consent, or in amounts greater than those agreed upon, grievances addressed to the offending lord, to parliament, or even to the king resulted. This sense of grievance is evident in the fact that this levy by Catherine is prominently listed first 
among her various exactions, impositions, and extortions by the jurors of both the county and city of Waterford in their presentments. Quote, first the said jury present that is touching coin and livery, the Lady Catherine Butler usurpeth a dominion upon the king's subjects in parcel of the county of Waterford called by her Powers County, without title or grant of the king's majesty or his deputy of this, his land of Ireland, and that continually from year to year. The illegality of this imposition is made clear in the fact that there was no government or royal grant for such a tax. Moreover, the inhabitants of County Waterford emphatically proclaimed themselves to be the king's subjects and not, as Lady Catherine apparently claimed, hers. In addition to the terms of coin and livery being established in, by rights and law, charters, ordinances, it was equally important that the exactions be confined to the Lord's own tenants. In fact, Catherine Sims goes so far, so far as to assert that allowing outside forces to collect the levy was, quote, an invitation to highway robbery. Lady Power violated this understanding also when she allowed two gallow glass from her father's retinue into County Waterford, quote, to take coin and livery for two days and two nights, quote, Soren. Lady Catherine's military forces were comprised of Curran, who were household troops responsible for assisting in the collection of rent, apprehending criminals, and guarding the chief and his family. Nicholas Fitzthomas Whalen served as the captain of Catherine's Curran, whose total number varies in the presentments from 17 or more to 60 or more, again, depending on where they're listed. However, in 1544, Piers was able to raise 34 current for warfare in France, which was 10 more than the king had requested. In addition to her own forces, Catherine could also rely on her brother James's troops for military support. James responded to Catherine's invitation to come to her aid against the danger posed by the Dunhill powers in the person of Nicholas Power. Following Richard's death, the minority of the Carmore heir was the perfect opportunity for the Dunhill branch to attempt to reclaim their authority, and this potential threat needed to be speedily eliminated. Aided by Catherine's forces, the Whalens, James entered Waterford, stole cows, horses, and household goods from the Dunhill powers. Catherine continued the punitive harassment of her adversary, utilizing other servants to steal additional cows, horses, sheep, and household goods, leaving Nicholas's daughter in the point of death and one good husband wounded. Even a peace concluded between the two was insufficiently binding to prevent Catherine's servants from killing four of Nicholas's followers. Though Catherine could rely upon her natal kin during the non-age of her son, her father surviving until 1539, her brother until 1546, Joan Fitzgerald Butler was not as fortunate in supportive family relationships, facing challenges from both her own Fitzgerald kin and her late husband's butler relatives. Joan's father, James Fitzgerald, 11th Earl of Desmond, died in 1529, while Joan was still an adolescent. As the only legitimate offspring of the marriage, Joan did not enjoy the backing of her two illegitimate half-brothers. Her father's successor to the title, his uncle Thomas, viewed Joan as merely a means to his own ends, that is, ensuring the future succession of his grandson to the title. In hopes of achieving this, Thomas married Joan to his adversary, James Butler, future 9th Earl of Ormond, in 1532. Disputes between Joan and later Desmond Earls regarding the dowry lands that Joan brought to this marriage continued throughout much of her life. 
Though Joan, like Catherine, did possess sufficient military manpower in the form of gallow glass to protect her son's rights, unlike Catherine, she was initially hesitant to use them. When it was pointed out to her that, as a woman, she could have little skill in fighting, Joan reportedly responded, quote, Though I cannot, I have a thousand and more that can, but God forbid that should come to that point, as I will never attempt it, but will give over ill and go among my friends and live upon my own. Eschewing Breton law and military force, Joan relied upon English law and the Dublin government to arbitrate her dispute with one butler collateral over land in counties Tipperary and Waterford. Richard Fitzwilliam Fitzjohn Butler had contested the distribution of these lands under James Butler's will, and the Irish government was petitioned to settle the dispute in 1547. The order and award issued by the Irish Lord Deputy and Council references Joan first in her capacity as her late husband's executrix. As a plaintiff's name normally appears before the defendants on legal documents, it appears that Joan initiated the legal proceedings, submitting her dispute with Richard Butler to the judgment of the highest governmental authorities in Ireland. However, provided with male military expertise two and a half years after James's death in the person of her second husband, the nature of Joan's interaction with the cadet branches of the Butler family did evolve upon her marriage to Sir Francis Bryan, who served as Lord Marshal of the Irish forces. For the actions of their servants, Joan and Sir Francis were responsible for the theft of cattle, horses, sheep, and goats belonging to Sir Thomas Butler, Baron of Care, and Joan's brother-in-law. Thomas was involved in similar depredations, spoils, robberies, and other personal actions, and ultimately fines against both sides in the dispute were levied by the Irish Chancellor. In addition to her reliance on English law, Joan further compensated for the absence of direct familial support by relying on the intervention of influential individuals in the English government to represent her cause. When James Butler died in 1546, his son Thomas was already in the custody of the crown, having been resident at court for approximately two years. All that was now necessary was for the profits of his two-thirds to come to the king's hands. The vast extent of these holdings can be gauged from the findings of the Inquisition's post-mortem held at Kilkenny, Dublin, Novain, and Nace throughout 1547. As administering crown lands outside of the pale was difficult, the Irish Lord Deputy was often granted the properties, I'm sorry, the profits of Irish wardships in lieu of a portion of his salary. However, Joan's concern regarding the actions of Lord Deputy St. Ledger and his brother Robert prompted her to write directly to Lord Protector Somerset, who was second only to the English king. Evidencing her political acumen, Joan reminded the Lord Protector that James Butler had committed his son and heir to Somerset's tuition and protection in March of 1547. She was particularly apprehensive about those who, quote, wrongly goeth about to defeat my poor children's title. While Joan acknowledged that others would control her son Thomas's land during his minority, she hoped this could be accomplished without the removal of tenants who had faithfully served the king as Robert St. Ledger had threatened to do. However, Richard Bagwell concludes that under St. Ledger's governance, quote, there was such a tendency to depress the Ormond interest that the widowed countess thought it wise to go to London and plead her case in person. 
Some indication of Joan's success in representing her son's interests can be found in the fact that some 20 months later, in November of 1548, the then-Lord Deputy, Sir Edward Bellingham, was still requesting clarification with regard to his authority over Thomas's holdings. Bellingham des desired that confirmation be sent speedily, as Joan was not convinced of his standing and continued to be involved in her husband's, I'm sorry, her son's business concerns in Ormond. Despite Bellingham's request for speedy confirmation of his authority over Thomas's inheritance, the debate resurfaced six months later. In June of 1549, Walter Cowley, in his capacity as Surveyor General, wrote to Bellingham expressing his concerns regarding the administration of the king's two parts of Ormond's lands. Apparently writing in reference to local rumors, Cowley expressed the opinion that it, quote, was not meet that my lady, that is Joan, should have control of her son's inheritance. Joan, however, intended to retain that control. Acting in Thomas's interest, she had determined that James White and Nicholas Brown shall have the little village near Clonmel called Lawliston, which is parcel of the Earl of Ormond's lands and the king's two parts. Well, accepting that the village was a portion of the king's two parts and not hers to grant without Bellingham's concurrence, Joan enlisted Cowley to write to Bellingham seeking his compliance. However, Joan did not intend to continue to ask for the Lord Deputy's permission for land transactions, which involved the king's two parts. Rather, according to Joan, as of June 28, 1549, Bellingham would no longer control those lands, for she would have confirmation from England that her son and husband, quote, shall have the king's two parts to be disposed at their pleasure. Exploiting a loophole in English law, Joan and Brian even added to those lands held for Thomas's use through the execution of a bond between themselves and Eleanor Frame. David Edward, 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 sorry, David Edwards argues that such an addition to a ward's estate was usually impossible. Still in a deed dated January the 16th, 1549, Eleanor did in fief James Sweetman and Leonard Blansfield with lands which Edwards identifies as some 4,870 acres in the barony of Glamoy to the use of Thomas, Earl of Desmond. The concept of use was a means of granting land that Joan, exhibiting sophisticated legal knowledge, had successfully employed with her own dowry holdings in the past. Land was granted to a friend or friend, called the Fiofis, to hold to an individual's use as instructed. The Fiofis were considered to be the tenants at law. Therefore, these lands would have been exempt from inclusion in the king's two-thirds, and Thomas could have enjoyed the profits without royal interference. In the end, the methods employed by both of these strong-willed women proved successful in ensuring their son's inheritance. Catherine's reliance on Brehan law and military intervention was bolstered by the influence, guidance, and support she received from her male relations and loyal forces, allowing her son Piers to hold the title Second Baron Power and Caramore, to sit in the 1541 Irish Parliament, and to serve Henry VIII as Captain General. In the early years of her widowhood, Joan did not enjoy male backing, and so turned to legal over military means to advance her objective. Aware of the impact of political influence, Joan appealed to high-ranking individuals in the Dublin administration and the English court throughout the remainder of her life. 
Joan's achievement is evident when, in October 1551, Thomas Butler was released from the wardship of the crown one year before he reached his majority and received his patrimony, the two-thirds share of his inheritance controlled by the king, at a rent of 681 pounds. Ultimately, Pia's control over his barony was short-lived as he died unmarried on October 16, 1545. Thomas enjoyed a much longer tenure as 10th Earl of Ormond and Ossory, dying in 1614 at the age of 83. As a postscript, try to imagine what life would have been like with these two women, Catherine and Joan, living under the same roof. <laughs> this did happen in the 1550s when Catherine was married to James Fitzgerald, 14th Earl of Desmond, and Joan was married to James's son, Gerald, later 15th Earl of Desmond. The two former sisters-in-law were now mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, each attempting to protect the interests of their own Fitzgerald spouse. To further add to the contention and confusion, Catherine's second son, John, now third Baron Curramore, was married to Alice Fitzgerald, daughter of James and sister of Gerald. I'll leave you to work that out. 